This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're about to wrap up our second season, so you've got more than 20 episodes to catch up on, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on the Kids Listen app or at kidslisten.org, the number one place to find great podcasts for kids of all ages. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift today. Today's theme, eating out indoors again. I haven't eaten inside a restaurant since March 8th. I know lots of places you can go into a restaurant and eat. Reduced capacity, servers wearing masks, disposable plates and utensils, and a different experience than just a few short months ago. I've eaten outside at restaurants a few times since the pandemic started, as being outside in the fresh air and the sun feels safe. And that's what I want in a restaurant experience. I want to feel safe. We may have taken for granted all the things that restaurants did before the pandemic to keep us safe. From food sourcing to food handling to cleaning and sanitation, most of this is things we don't see to protect us from things we can't see. The novel coronavirus presents a whole new set of protocols that we need to put in place to make sure we are safe. And while there's always going to be some risk, there are steps restaurants can and are taking to ensure more safety in these new times. I was lucky enough to get on the phone last week with Bob Burke, the owner of Pot au Feu in Providence, Rhode Island, who's done a lot of work to have the safest restaurant in America. He and his team have thought it through and implemented a great deal of excellent measures that we can all learn from. We are now the safest restaurant in America. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, let's uh, let's start let's start right there, and then we can work backwards from there. So, so yeah. So let's talk about uh, Potofa and uh, and COVID nineteen. So, you know, sure. your restaurant is older than most. Um, you know, I think they say most. You know, most restaurants are you know fail within the first five years or something like that. So you've been there. You've been in Providence a long time, um, but I imagine you've never faced anything like what what we're going through right now. Well, actually, you know, I remember back um, one time uh, getting in a Tyvek suit and uh, putting on sterile gloves, um, a uh, bonnet on my head, um, 
put on safety glasses, put on a surgical mask, put on surgical booties, taped uh, at the wrist and ankles with uh, duct tape in order to go see uh, an employee who was dying of the virus. Hmm. And um, my wife and I went to the hospital and, and suited up in that way. Uh, but this was not something that happened this spring because of the COVID virus. Uh, this occurred back in the 80s. And uh, one of our servers was the seventh uh, AIDS case in Rhode Island. Hmm. So, uh, as the French say, la plus sons, la plus et la même chose, um, we experienced this before in a different way. Right. And, um, uh, so I, I guess, you know, by being in the restaurant business this long, uh, in an odd way, we sort of came prepared. Uh, that happened just after we bought the restaurant in 1986. And, um, no one even knew to call it AIDS then, you know, sure. it was, um, it was as mysterious, uh, then for us as it uh, was in this pandemic for many other people. And, um, you know, I, I guess we sort of felt like we'd been to the rodeo before. Hmm. So with uh, the advantage of, uh, of, of being around so long is, is that we really have been through so many other crises. Uh, I, I think we counted six hurricanes, uh, you know, a tornado, <laughs> <laughs> uh, two fires, um, you know, Y2K. You know, sure. You know, it's, it's like a, an alphabet soup of... Um, uh, you know, nine eleven, two thousand eight. You know, it's just uh, there's always been something, right? Uh, you know, that it's like a recipe. There's always something that you throw in for the zing, <laughs> and um, you know, the restaurant business has never been without the zing. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. Wow. Um, so you know, so then you know, have, having seen this before, obviously, you know, it's never a you know, you never want these things to happen. Um, but recently, you know, you've started saying that your restaurant is is the safest restaurant in America as far as COVID protocols. And, you know, I wanted to commend you. Um, I read an article in the Providence Journal about about those and would love to talk with you a little bit more about what you've put in place. Um, some of them like the fact that you uh, I believe you were you offered your or you have, are providing for your employees um, N95 or better Masks. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think to kind of give people an overview, yeah. the, the things that really matter in, um, in precautions are, number one, if you're on the high wire, uh, you don't want to be up there without a net. And, uh, you know, you look down and you see, well, that net maybe is a little rickety and it's got holes in it. So you yell and say, hey, put a second net under the first net, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. and my theory of the restaurant business is that I want about six nets below me uh, every time we go to do something because uh, Murphy's law prevails and uh, we know that, that we know that the nets are going to fail. So if, if for some reason the HVAC system, uh, which we uh, put a lot of our equipment in to fight the virus and clean the air, suppose that shut down on a busy Saturday night and I had a room full of people and the virus uh, count began to rise. I want to know that I've got multiple other layers underneath that. Right. So that we can talk a little bit about of that approach 
that if you want to make your restaurant safe, the first thing you've got to do is have a multi-layered approach. You've got to have a plan that's more of a matrix than a line that goes from point A to point B. And if you develop this matrix, they begin to overlap and they begin to increase the safety level. And, um, uh, you know, I, I say on the issue of, uh, you know, uh, the safest restaurant in America, that's our goal. Uh, if you can find a safer restaurant, go eat there. Uh, and, and and let me know about it because I may finally go out to eat right. <laughs> at some place other than Potosfera sure. if I can find a place that's as safe as we are. Uh, but so far, I haven't found it. I hope many more restaurants will uh, use the knowledge that we've, um, uh, you know, taken months to really get to um, and implement it because uh, it's important that the entirety of America have confidence in their dining experience and that they uh, know that it's going to be a safe experience. So um, what we really did is we said, look, at number one, air. And we didn't know back in the spring, there was a lot of speculation as to whether it was contact transmission or aerosol transmission. We now know, and my guru on this has been uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Professor Aaron Bromwich, who's um, uh, at UMass, yep. and many people have seen him in the media. And I fortunately came in contact with him very early and began using the principles that he was developing, the Chinese restaurant study, the choir study, uh, various office studies, um, you know, where he had cruise ship studies. Uh, where he had begun to suss out this idea that, you know what, uh, chances are this is a lot more to do with the air you breathe than picking it up um, as a contact. Right. But we decided we would fight that war on both fronts, that we were going to fight contact war, and we were also going to fight the air war. Well, I feel like and, restaurants uh, have been fighting the contact war already, right? I mean, because of the way that the cold, common cold and the seasonal flu get passed around is often through contact. And, you know, I mean, I, I said very early on with, you know, some chef colleagues that, you know, I mean, chefs know how to wash their hands. When all this stuff was happening about, like, teaching people to wash their hands, the people who know how to wash their hands really well were like, you know, dentists and chefs. That's right. And, uh, you know, we, we come to it with that grounding in knowledge of cross-contamination, how to break the chain that, you know, passes pathogens from one spot to another, one person to another. You know, what's, what's great about what we do is that we were already steeped in the, you know, microbiotic soup. And, uh, you know, we really had an awareness of that. So we you know, we were able to add COVID to the list rather than creating entirely new uh, procedures. Mm. Um, you know, we were already uh, using um, good practices. We were already disinfecting. We already have, a, you know, a critical control system. And we look at these things all the time. And I think that that was a big advantage for us in, you know, kind of coming at this. And it's an advantage for the industry as a, as a whole. Right. So, you know, going back to, you know, the idea of, okay, well, what do you want to do with the air? So we know that, you know, the governor of Rhode Island has quoted that, that outdoors is 19 times safer than indoors. And you say, okay, well, what's the difference between outdoor and air and indoor air? And it, at first you kind of say, well, nothing, you know, it's all the 
same stuff. It's a mix of nitrogen, hydrogen, other gases, oxygen. And, um, you know, how could, different could it be on one side of a window than it is on the other side? Well, when we analyze the outdoor air, we find that there are some distinct advantages to it. Number one, the sheer volume of it. You know, it's six miles thick and it wraps around the entire earth. That's yeah. a lot of air. Okay. <laughs> so that means that that offers the pro- prospect of, of great dilution. We can, you can really, when you exhale, that whatever was in that breath that you exhale is going to dilute into a massive volume. You know, trillions and trillions, hundreds of trillions, trillions of trillions right. of molecules of air <laughs> sure. that this can disperse into and become uh, less dangerous. Because one of the other things we know is that dose matters. How high is the concentration of virus that's in that next breath you're going to take? If that concentration is low, you're safer than if the concentration is high. So outdoors, we've got a big volume to dilute into. That's number one. Number two, all those breezes. It's swirling, it's mixing, it's moving it away, it's dispersing it. And again, probably if you exhale the viral load, what's going to happen is is that that's going to get dispersed before it gets into somebody else's air passages. So that makes it safe. The other thing that's happening is is that, you know, we go to the the pharmacy and we buy uh, um, sunscreen before we go out on the beach or out in the sun. And those are rated and you've seen the ratings on them uva uvb right you want to protect for both of those uv ultraviolet uv stands for ultraviolet ultraviolet form a ultraviolet form b well it turns out that you can protect yourself from those with a little bit of sunscreen but there's the big daddy in the family the real troublemaker in uv is called uvc Hmm. They have a big brother, and UVC is a monster. It is deadly to all forms of life. doesn't matter whether you're a microbe, you're a virus, you're a bacteria, you're an insect, a rodent, a human being. UVC, sustained exposure to UVC, will cause death. That's the good news and the bad news. So back when the ozone layer uh, was disappearing, uh, the big thing that was coming through that we were really worried about was the UVC. So sunlight is a natural disinfectant. The UV rays in the sunlight are killing things in the air, and one of the things they kill is viruses. So now we've got dilution, we've got distribution, we've got killing power, and it turns out there's another advantage to outdoor air, and that is, is that there's a thing called ions, and negatively or positively charged ions if they're introduced into the air, uh, attach with many of the other parts of the air, especially particles, they make them heavy, and it's like overloading a plane. It crashes. It goes to the ground. And that's what is happening. Uh, When you go to the seashore, you find out that ion levels near the seashore are extremely high, amongst the highest that you'll find in the world. Uh, Same out in a forest. Okay, natural places have high ion ion levels, and a lot of people tell you that high levels of negative ions give you a high. They make you feel good. That's part of the reason why we like to go hiking. We like to Ah. go camping. We like to go to the beach. Right. Is because those ionizations, uh, when they get into our bloodstream through our lungs, we breathe them in, and they say they are very healthy and they uh, give you really good, clean air. So it turns out that uh, 
when we go indoors, it's possible for us to take advantage or to replicate through technology what's happening to the outdoor air. So we got UVC lamps. They actually make those. Hmm. And they're germicidal lamps. And when you turn them on, they begin killing everything that's floating in that air. So we put those in our air ducts. So all of the air that goes through the room recirculating is being treated with UV light. The second thing, we've got an ionizer. In fact, we have four ionizers. And we're introducing a huge number of negatively and positively charged ions into the air. And the minute they get out there, they start seizing. Boom, they're attracted right away to anything floating. So if it's a droplet, if it's an aerosol, if it's a speck of dust, these things attach to it, and they crash land onto the floor. So unless you're you know, laying on the floor passed out, uh, you're not going to have any chance of getting those viruses near your nostrils. So they're sinking to the floor, and we know that they're safer sitting on the floor than they are floating in the air around your head. So we installed those. Uh, and then we found out that, you know, obviously there are filters but as we say now, there are filters and there are filters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the average filter, uh, you know, like you might have at home or in an air system, um, filters out really big particles, does a good job with dust and some pollens. But you know, it turns out that there's places that we need super clean air, like in a hospital and especially like in an operating room. Well, it turns out that filters have been developed for those uses. They're either, they go under the name of either a, a HEPA filter, a lot of people see that with their vacuum and things like that, they're familiar with it from that. Only these are giant filters. These are big enough, you know, two feet by two feet to put in an in a, in a air system. So we got filters at that level. Um, and the filters we're using are actually operating room level filters. We replaced the old one-inch filter that was in our uh, air system uh, with a four-inch thick filter. <laughs> and ain't nothing coming through that. You right, know? It's, of course. It's down to the 0 .03 micron level. That's the level of droplets, dust, pollens, even a lot of chemical substances. So we're filtering with those. We also are filtering with charcoal filter. We're filtering with particulate filters. And we've got uh, four additional filtration stations strategically positioned throughout the dining. So that's kind of the air story. That's the air war. Right. And that's, and that's amazing. I mean, I, I really like, I have heard about people, you know, trying to get a little bit of filtration. I've heard about places, you know, opening the windows, which of course in the Northeast and in Northern climates is not going to be functional in a couple, you know, in a couple of weeks, probably right. And nobody wants to sit in a restaurant when it's 34 degrees inside. Um, but that's right. I, you know, I really feel like you have come up with such a, you know, an, an excellent comprehensive, um, plan of attack that as you point out is, you know, it, it, it may not be perfect, but it's certainly better than doing nothing or better than just doing a little bit. That's right. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, it, it's a war and uh, we're trying to kill something. And, uh, you know, in that war, we're firing some bullets and we're shooting off some bazookas and a couple yep. of mortars. And sure. we've got a few, 
you know, uh, rockets and... <laughs> and you've got new intelligence coming in and you might have to change That's what right. you're doing based on new intelligence. Yeah, sure. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. And we also do, uh, you know, um, and the advantage to, to uh, you know, restaurants is, is that is that we already do know a lot about ventilation. We've been dealing with hoods and, you know, I got a 7,200 CFM hood on the roof and, you know, we're, we're familiar already with the need for, for the purity of the air. That's not new to us, but, uh, you know, it enabled us to adapt and we actually do introduce a lot of outdoor air and mm-hmm. treated, in, you know, air into the room as another way of diluting, um, you know, the possible dosage of uh, a virus that might be present. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all about those things. The next yeah. thing that, um, you know, obviously you're concerned about is, is what if, if in fact it is possible to touch something, you know, and uh, end up uh, getting it on your fingers, and maybe touching your eyes where there are mucous membranes that, uh, you know, where a virus can, can enter your body. Uh, so, you know, that is a concern. So what we've done is, is that our contact, and we call these high contact surfaces, and, um, you know, what's a high contact surface? Well, that's a highfalutin name for a doorknob, okay? <laughs> uh, it's a highfalutin name for the handle on a toilet, uh, you know, the, the handles on a faucet, um, the crank on a uh, paper towel dispenser, and uh, the railing on the stairs. These are all, you know, high contact surfaces, meaning a lot of people touch them. They may have just sneezed into their hand. They may have just coughed into their hand. And uh, they touch the surface. It transfers the virus to the surface. You walk in the door 30 seconds later, put your hand on it, and you're touching something that you would never want to touch normally. And uh, then maybe you uh, touch your eye, touch your face, and the virus that was in that transfers and makes its way into your body and begins to affect it. So, what do we want to do to deal with that? Well, the big thing that we want to do is, first of all, clean. We want to make sure those surfaces are cleaned regularly, which we do. The second thing, and a lot of people don't realize, they think that clean and sanitize are synonymous, but they're not. They're two different things. Cleaning is removing dirt, uh, foreign substances, contamination from a surface. Even after you've cleaned, there's always going to be some life left in the form of bacteria, microbes, pathogens. What we then do is we sanitize. We apply a chemical disinfectant. It's FDA FDA approved for use in restaurants and food establishments. So that's really important. You don't want to be using something from an industrial disinfectant. You want a food grade disinfectant, which we use. And there's a list of those on the FDA website. And what we now do and we, is, is that we want to apply that disinfectant. And what we found out is a couple of things. And this is interesting. You know how you go to a lot of places, you see them spraying a little disinfectant on the, on the doorknobs and they wipe it right off? Yep. That's not how you do it. <laughs> they are spraying something that will kill things onto a surface and then wiping it back off. Disinfectant... Right have what's called dwell time. And I know your past experience in the industry, you know yep. what dwell time is. So you, you can go ahead and explain dwell time. 
So yeah, I mean, it has to do with the fact that the um, whatever the substance is, whether it's a, you know an acidic substance or whether it's an alkaline substance, in order to neutralize the bacteria and microorganisms, it needs to spend a certain amount of time in contact with them. And so if you put it on there and then you remove it right away, you know, I mean, I you know the the best way I can think of to to sort of compare it to like a food thing would be like if you want to make pickles and you poured your vinegar brine over your cucumbers and left it for a minute and then poured it out, you're not going to have pickles. You're still going to have cucumbers that just got kind of touched by vinegar. You have to leave them in there and then eventually it soaks in and it becomes pickles. Great way of explaining it. I really like the pickle explanation. I'm stealing it from you. (laughs) (laughs) Please go for it. (laughs) But it really is true. And, you know, so when you see um, servers or, you know, uh, cleaning people doing this, they're actually not Uh, getting the maximum protection. So what we found out is is that not only can you spray these disinfectants on, but there are now disinfectants that have been developed that actually will last and work, not just for a few minutes, but will work for 24 hours. And they're called microbands. And when we spray a surface with that, we're getting 24 hours of protection. So our front door, we started by installing a microband handle. Uh, it's impregnated with silver ions. Silver ions are very deadly to life. Sure. And uh, in the coating, when um, and it's a permanent coating, and um, uh, that coating immediately starts to kill viruses and microbes uh, on the surface after you've touched it. The second thing we did is we found out that there are now also some very high-tech fabrics that have been made that will kill microbes for 90 days. And we have applied those to all of our high-contact surfaces. So when you come in, the railing, you'll see right on it, there's a fabric applied to it, and it says that it's providing continuous protection. And uh, the minute uh, anything gets on it, it starts to kill anything that's in any residue that's left behind on that surface. So not only do we clean that surface uh, and sanitize that surface, that surface itself has uh, microbe fighting qualities. And then the other thing we did with high contact is we said, well, you know, you can either protect against it or what if you remove the contact entirely? And that brings me to our restrooms where we now have entirely contact-free flush, soap, paper dispenser, and faucet. Right. And the only thing you need to touch is the door handle, and we've got a little uh, thing of napkins right by the door handle, and we also have the uh, microband fabric on the door handle. So we've done one of two things with every high-contact surface. We've either put a protective layer on it, or we've removed it as a contact surface completely. Um, I mean, that is such a, you know, it, it's a it's an incredible roadmap. I mean, my hope, of course, is that people will listen to this interview and be able to use all the things you've said in order to upgrade upgrade their restaurants all over the place. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I want to talk a little bit about employees because I definitely, as the, you know, as people have been pushing for reopening and in-person dining and that sort of thing, I've, you know, within the industry, I've definitely been seeing and hearing and reading about a lot of concern that people have for employees, Um, you know, especially servers who, you know, it's one thing to have a tight-knit group in the kitchen who are wearing masks and are working together and are already working in a very, you know, sanitary environment that is under your control for the most part. But when you talk about servers, front of house, uh, interacting with the public who are coming in, that puts them at greater risk. And I've definitely seen a lot of um, discussion and and have personal concern for the fact that, you know, people who want to go out to restaurants might not be the people who are being safest in the rest of their lives because they're really pushing for this thing. And then how do you protect your employees? And of course, it all starts from masks. But I've even had discussions with people where they say, well, look, you know, giving someone a mask that has the branding of your large corporate restaurant on it that happens to be a two-layer cotton mask really isn't enough, right? It doesn't really show that you care about your employees. So I want to hear a little bit about your protocols for that. Yeah. So first of all, you got to understand masks, right? So um, uh, masks actually are a subcategory of filters. Okay. So the same thing we're doing with the big air system, filtering the air, we're doing on a micro level uh, at your mouth with a mask that's a couple of, you know, square inches in size. So remember that they're filters and that filters have different qualities. So is there such a thing as an equivalent to a HEPA filter that you can wear as a mask? And the answer is yes. And I found this out many years ago, uh, de-leading a house, that I could wear a mask that would actually keep those tiny lead molecules out of my bloodstream. And um, the masks that you can get, uh, and actually they're widely available, it's called a P100. It's a mask that is uh, specifically designed with the idea that it's going to stop um, uh, vapors and liquids from getting through. Now the P100 is the most effective mask that's out there. It's 99.97% effect against the three micron uh, uh, substance. So you're gonna use this in a spray booth. You're gonna use it uh, if you're dealing with things like mercury. uh, And this is the kind of protective gear. We've got those. I bought a supply of them. Uh, they were not regulated because they weren't 
uh, classified as medical, they're actually uh, higher rated than the N95 that's used in the hospitals. And a lot of hospital workers do use these respirators, as they're called. Um, they're so good that, A, you can't be heard when you're wearing one. Your voice is totally muffled. And, B, I had to seal all my floors and walls with polyurethane. They're brick and stone. And I could not smell the polyurethane wearing the P100. Mm. And you know how stinky polyurethane is. So the P100 is great. So 3M did not actually make a mask that provided exhale P100 protection. So what I did is I got P100 filters and installed them inside the mask. So when you're wearing a P100 that I've adapted, you're getting P100 protection in and out, which means I can't get the virus from you and you can't get the virus from me. Right. Uh, and that is 99.97 certain. The next mask down is the, is the N95. The N95 means that it will filter 95% instead of 99.97% of those particles. And that's what the hospital workers are wearing. There's another mask called a KN95, which has not gone through the rigorous testing, but follows the same manufacturing procedure as the N95. So we have available to our servers, if our servers want to wear an, a P100, uh, their comfort level, they have the option of doing so. And we provide them with a Bluetooth speaker so they can be cured clear as a bell. The, the little microphone goes right inside the mask and they wear the speaker on their belt and everyone can hear them clear as a bell. So they have that option. If they want to wear it, I back them and I provide the mask to them completely free of charge. All of our masks are provided to our staff free of charge. We've got a lot of restaurateurs who are saying to their staff, hey, just make a cloth thing at home and wear it in. Right. That is totally inappropriate. That Agreed. is the wrong way to approach this. I agree. So and, and, in, and in all in industries, honestly, I think, not just in, you know, not just in the restaurant industry, I feel like anybody who has to deal with the public, the employer should have to provide them with a mask and it should be based around certain standards. It shouldn't just be this thing. Well, I just bring your own thing or wear a neck gaiter or whatever you feel like. Right. So our servers are not allowed to wear a cloth mask. They're not allowed to wear a paper mask. They, if they're not in an N95, they can't report to work. So, you know, we know that that makes everyone safer. It makes them safer. It makes our customers safer. So everybody, I've got boxes of my KN95s, and they're available, and no one gets to work unless they're, they're wearing those masks. And I think that's really important. It's one of the first telltales. If you walk into a restaurant and you see everybody in the real mask, that's a great comfort and should be a telltale to you that this is a place that's taking it seriously. If you walk in and anyone is wearing a, you know, one of those, those crappy little toilet paper masks and they're wearing it under their nose or yeah. under their chin, turn around and walk out. Do not go in that restaurant. They don't know what they're doing and they're not taking it seriously. Yeah. And I can't emphasize that enough to people. No, so agreed. we also have white glove service. You know, I hate the look of those nitrile gloves. Those things are <laughs> terrible. So we bought hundreds and hundreds of white gloves, beautiful white cotton gloves, absorbent, uh, you know, and we use them one use. So we bring them over, we serve, 
We hold your plates with white gloves. We bring them over to the table. We put your plates down. We go back, take the gloves off. They're put into a uh, special bin. They're going to be taken out, bleached and sanitized, and come back for another perfectly clean single use uh, when delivering. We're also covering plates. The French love, it's called the cloche. What yeah. could be more elegant? Totally. You know, everybody's heard of uh, pheasant under glass, you know? Yep. Uh, well, the glass is called the cloche, and we've got plate covers, we've got cloches, uh, and we're actually serving as many dishes as we can with the covering on them. It's only a short distance, a couple of feet from our kitchen to the table, so we know we've got a low risk there. But even that situation, we're trying to add... Uh, factors that will minimize that risk even further than uh, than before. At our bar, we've closed the bar entirely. So right. No more seating at the bar. When the bartender, the bartender is all alone, socially distanced, making the drinks, and um, again, observing practices behind the bar, which are keeping those drinks safe and making sure that nothing is happening to that drink from the time that it's made. You know, seconds later, it's on your table. And you know that it's back in your safe zone. Right, right. And so after taking all of these precautions, how's it going? Uh, we, we, people can't get in. Great. So, <laughs> <laughs> so forget about it. <laughs> it's, uh, we're, we're booked like crazy. Um, uh, we've got uh, ceiling to floor partitions between the tables. Yep. Um, you, know, even, you know, even as we were deciding, we wanted to, um, you know, take things off the table so there was less contract transmission. You know, one of the things we looked at was candles. We even analyzed the fact that the candles burn up the virus. A virus mm. will not live at those temperatures. So, you know, even one of our little deciding factors was do the fact that we've got candles in the dining room give us an edge? Yeah, <laughs> it <laughs> does. So that was that's what made the decision on candles. Do we leave them on the table or not? We leave them on the table. And um, uh, we know that, you know, we've got dozens of little little fires going and that every time a particle of virus gets near one of those flames, it gets destroyed. So even down to the candles, we're using them as part of our weapon in the war. That's, I, you know, that's that's incredible. Well, I'm so glad to hear that um, that business is good. Have things changed for you in the back of house? Well, back of house. Our, our, our chef, uh, Chef Spike Mikulski, is just an incredible guy. And he is um, himself uh, so steeped in the world of microbes because he's a mycologist. Hmm. And he is the first person ever certified by the state of Rhode Island um, in their uh, wild mushroom certification program. Hmm. And he actually helped the state create the program and the licensing. And if any restaurant wants to sell uh, foraged wild mushrooms, they have to bring them to him for inspection and certification to be certain that they're safe. Got and um, he's a guy who goes out in the woods, uh, harvests uh, forages, and harvests mushrooms, takes them back, puts them under a microscope, yeah. okay, and looks them at the cellular level. So I already knew that from that standpoint, that I had total confidence in our chef's ability to execute on this idea of fighting the microbes because he's, he's a person who's already dealing on that level, that micro level, 
uh, in keeping uh, things safe and sanitary here in the restaurant. So in terms of that, one of the first things we did do, like we started curbside, we divided up our station. So we changed the layout of the kitchen and we changed our workflow. We restricted visitors. No one's able to walk in the door and just, you know, everybody has to be checked. So uh, we really changed a lot of the workflow and a lot of the work process. And again, we found that if you create a station where people don't need to go out of the station, then you prevent crisscrossing, you prevent accidental contact, and you make everybody safe. Right. So we've instituted those kinds of changes here at the restaurant, and we think that that's a benefit to everyone involved. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I you know, so let's see. So if people wanted to find out more and if they wanted to try to get a reservation, the website is Pato for R-I. So P-O-T-A-U-F-E-U-R-I.com. And we're also posting up next week. We have um, uh, uh, developed an app uh, which is going to help other people um, assess restaurants. So it's a rating app. It's a scale of one to 100. Um, no surprise, Pontefer scores 100 on it. Of course. Um, but people will be able to go to our website starting next week, and they're on their phone. Before they go to a restaurant, there's a checklist. It's divided up between the changes the restaurant's made in their air quality, their contact, their staff. It goes down category by category with all of these things. Restaurateurs can go to it and self-check and they will be able to post their um, safe star uh, posting. It's a one through five star system, and it tells you uh, immediately how a restaurant scores on safety measures that we have been researching and instituting and implementing here at the pot. So we, we, we think one of the biggest problems people have today is they're not sure what the standards are. They don't know. They don't have that measuring stick in their pocket. Right. So they go to walk into a restaurant. What are you using? Are you using, you know, a tape measure, a yardstick, a ruler? Uh, they don't even know where to begin to sort of say what's safe, what isn't. This doesn't look right to me, but I'm not too sure. I don't know what question to ask the restaurant owner about their filters. I have no idea. You know, looking at a partition, whether a half partition is a good partition, you know, all of those things. So uh, this will help people when they come to the website, they can do assessments and have uh, a much better idea whether or not the restaurant they're going to. Um, that's, I mean, what a what an incredible resource to offer, you know, both your industry and also you know, and also just diners. I mean, I really, you know, Bob, I want to really commend you and your team for doing so much. I mean, one of, you know, as, as someone who used to go out to eat a lot, um, I have not been inside a restaurant, uh, you know, since March 8th. And, you know, a lot of the reason for that is feeling like, well, you know, the reason I go to a restaurant is because, you know, I mean, I love to cook, but you go to a restaurant to eat someone else's food and to celebrate and to have interesting conversation with your friends and family and to feel at ease. 
And so, you know, the idea of going and sitting in a restaurant and looking around and it wondering exactly what you're talking about. Well, are they using filters? And, you know, is that mask really good enough? And, oh, I saw the server scratch his nose. And, you know, all, you know, are there partitions? All of these things don't add up to me to a good experience at a restaurant, which of course for you as a restaurateur, that's the whole point, right? Is creating that experience for the diner. Absolutely. You know, and it's really funny as we've reopened, people are dressing up again. There's a trend that we never thought we'd see. It's <laughs> amazing. Oh my God, I've seen more ties and jackets than I have in the last 10 years put together. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Well, sure. And, you know, the other impact, which is kind of tough, you know, is that I said, hey, I'm dying for you to come to my restaurant. But, you know, here's the funny part. At a certain point, I go, okay, now get the heck out of here. i got to turn these yeah. tables, you know? <laughs> right. So one of the things we've noticed is, is that people are like, oh, my God, this is the first time we're out in six months, and I can see them pulling out the tent and getting ready to camp. Yeah. Okay? Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's our turn times have just been blown apart. Uh, we're... We're now almost 50% higher on turn times than we were before the pandemic, uh, you know. And of course, that's affecting that's affecting revenue. Yeah, um, it sure. It makes it very stressful. But I can't tell you how many times. No, no, we're, we we haven't even looked at the menu yet. No, we're we're just going to have a cocktail. Uh, we we really want after dinner drinks. Yeah. Um, you know, sure. It's it's it's, it's one of the unseen impacts of. Um, you know, people reemerging from the cave. Yep. Uh, now that they're out in the sunlight, man, they don't want to go back in. <laughs> yeah, and they want and they want to make that safe experience in your at Potafo last as long as possible. You know. Exactly. Exactly. So that's part of what's contributing to people having a hard time getting in. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 thing I want to say is is that our uh, clients have been just unbelievably supportive throughout the entire process, whether they're coming for curbside, uh, which we have continued, um, and uh, the the tips they're leaving for our staff are just amazing, and uh, you know, it's, it's there's some really heartwarming parts of this that you see um, you know, where, where I'm sitting and um, uh, really incredible uh, kind of response from our customers and from uh, people who've been real loyalists over the years. So it's uh, it's a, it's one of the really nice parts. If there could be a nice part of this virus and pandemic, uh, it's the way uh, some people have responded to it. And they've really stepped up. Well, that's fantastic. Well, listen, I thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy day um, fixing sinks and all the other responsibilities that you have as a restaurant owner. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I cannot thank you enough for both doing all of the work to do this for your own restaurant, but for putting it out there for other people. Um, and I, and I want to come back just to something we talked about at the very beginning of our conversation, which is that I also really appreciate your comparison about the AIDS virus because, you know, you've been at this a long time. I remember, you know, AIDS when it was first starting as well, although I'm going to think I'm a little bit younger than you, but I think a lot of people don't. And so, you know, a lot of people who are younger than me and I'm 43, you know, don't remember AIDS when it was this thing that was killing people and nobody knew where it came from or how to treat it or how to deal with it. And so I really, I, right. I appreciate the the reminder that, you know, we're not even a year into the coronavirus as being something that has affected humankind. And so our ability for change and adaptation and resiliency, I think is something that we can all use to, you know, keep in mind. 
That's right. It's this. This wasn't the first. It won't be the last. Uh, I'll just quickly tell you a story that we every year on Valentine's Day, uh, we have a great aphrodisiac dinner here, and I tell the story of the memorials that were created to a woman named Carrie Brown. And there's a fabulous clock tower at Brown University. There's a beautiful fountain in the center of Providence. There's a bronze statue in, our, in, in Roger Williams Park. And all of these were created by a man named Paolo Bignati who came back to Providence. Carrie was from Providence. She was part of the Brown University family. And um, he built these memorials because she died in a pandemic. And she died in the pandemic of 1892. And in Providence, you can still see today uh, the lasting impact, the sorrow that is carried on uh, literally for centuries, uh, where this man came back to memorialize a woman who died in much the same way. Uh, despite the many advances in modern science and medicine, basically, she died the same way people are dying today. And he was so despondent over that loss. And it was so ironic to me this February 14th to be talking about these memorials. We had just heard about the virus. I actually referenced it, you know, that you've all spent the night hearing the story of a woman who died in a pandemic. I had no idea then that it would ever turn out to be as big as it was. But uh, I look back now at that and see just how ironic a moment that really was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, thank you again for, you know, for all that you are doing. And uh, I look forward to, to coming and enjoying a meal at Potifo if I can get a reservation. Yeah, absolutely. Give me a call. Everybody else is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Bob. I really, uh, I, I can't right. thank you enough. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can check out potafuri.com for more info on Bob and his app for grading restaurants and to make a reservation. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, like Time for Lunch, at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.